0: Dr. Scott Masson and this is my colleague Dr. Bill Friesen with Paideia today uh, we're going to talk about the function of s- storytelling in the Odyssey uh, storytelling is something that takes place in the Odyssey of course it itself is a story that is told but within the story there are many stories and these stories are told uh, not only uh, being sung by the rhapsodes uh, as they were called in that time There are also stories that are told by the gods themselves and in various other venues So the function of storytelling uh, is something we're going to want to look at here And I'm going to take an extract just as an illustration of this This is from book eight uh, of the uh, Odyssey and it's around just around lines 500 or so and I'll just set the stage and then dr. Friesen is going to uh, get Odysseus's response to this, but Odysseus has been hearing from uh, the Phaeacians, uh, singer Damodocus, and he is wondering and marveling at the fidelity of the story to the events that he actually witnessed himself. And he says, "I don't know who it was that taught you this, whether it was the muse or Apollo himself, uh, but I praise you to the skies when you sing of the fates of the Greeks who fought at Troy." You have it right all they did and suffered all the its as if you'd been there yourself uh, as if it were a first-hand account now tell me the story he says about that aspect of the Trojan battle in which Odysseus led the Trojan horse up tell us that story and then he proceeds to do precisely that he tells the account of how Odysseus deceived Uh, the Trojans and brought about their ultimate ruin and I now Bill's going to pick it up in response to the story which he tells which is an accurate portrait
1: yeah this is one of these magnificent epic similes here that you encounter in both the Iliad and the Odyssey so it says here so the famous singer sang his tale but Odysseus melted And from under his eyes the tears ran down drenching his cheeks as a woman weeps lying over the body of her dead husband who fell fighting for her city and people as he tried to beat off the pitiless day from the city and children she sees him dying and gasping for breath and winding her body about him she cries high and shrill while the men behind are hitting her with spear butts in the back and in her shoulders and force her up and lead her away into slavery to have hard work and sorrow and her cheeks were racked with pitiful weeping so were the pitiful tears of odysseus shed from under his brow but they went unnoticed by all the others all but Alcinous alone understood what he did and noticed since he was sitting next to him and heard him groaning heavily so there's so much going on there so many parallels scott
0: yeah it's one of the more extraordinary epic similes in the whole of the epic because we can see uh, obviously odysseus has asked demodocus to sing of this particular passage and knows what will happen if he's faithful to the account and when he tells it he he weeps but the epic simile that homer who himself was a rhapsode gives it compares odysseus in his response to the response of the trojan women who were betrayed by odysseus yeah. So there are just so many levels on which this is uh, playing And it's hard to know even what to make of the the simile here, but the the pure pathos of the uh, Episode is is striking
1: Maybe that's something we can springboard off of right there. It, it draws from the audience in this case odysseus an enormous uh, burst of pathos um, I'm not sure we could describe it quite as pity But if, if we do it's pity for what pity for? The Trojan women and children? Is it pity of, uh, by Odysseus for what may or may not be happening to his own wife and child? Is it pity I... for himself? Uh, is it pity for all mankind who finds themselves in such states of de- uh, desolation uh, in front of uh, cruel, harsh fate and the destructive forces thereof? Uh, or is it all of the above interconnected and woven into a single strand of commentary back upon the tale of Demodocus? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not
0: sure it could you could make an argument for all of the above Even though he's he his deceit has brought about the downfall of Troy And he seems pitiless in his desire to do that mm-hmm. that, that, that is bring the Trojan camp down the city bring it to ruin nonetheless, there's a recognition of of Something of the atrocity of the event and mm-hmm. and maybe even of the moral uh, ambiguity of, of using deceit to bring it down. I don't know. I, I don't really get any sense of that I do like your your suggestion that it might have something to do with him thinking about what's happened to his own Land of Ithaca in his absence
1: Is he himself the fallen husband? upon whom the woman winds herself the, the, the translation is really quite good here by Lattimore because immediately you think of a winding sheet The woman becomes the winding sheet for the dying man for his corpse to be Is he projecting that somehow onto Penelope a potential Penelope in a potential situation? Which has developed very likely because he hasn't been around to defend her. This fellow has been around to defend his wife And yet he is dead. He is unable to save his wife his household his child So this is where the universal commentary comes in. Is this the state of man? Is this the state of fathers and husbands? who, no matter how we battle and strive, sooner or later must see that disastrous day come.
0: So, I, and I don't think there's an answer to the question. I think it's evocative and it's not. There's no, it, it allows for all of the above. It does speak to the common state of mankind and the lack when, when there's no protector there that this is what happens, whether it's through deceit or just through sheer violence. They're left uh, weeping and lamenting but it's very powerful and it and it's evoked by story once again and that's yes. of course the theme here and the function of storytelling in the polis because we get various instances of this now uh, Demodocus here is the Phaeacian singer Themius is the name of the bard that is in the court at Ithaca where Odysseus is king and he hears his storytelling as well mm-hmm. but of course all of these are I wouldn't say they're proxies for Homer, but they're fulfilling the same function in the court that Homer himself would have played. And there's a great deal of praise for the singers by Homer, even explicitly. Homer actually, he breaks down the third wall, as it were, and and enters and speaks about the praiseworthiness of the singers. He does that at a couple points, actually. It's really interesting there in a way that foreshadows modern uh, writing
1: yeah it's i mean i don't want to get too much into meta narratives because again i think this is something with which we have an obsession nowadays which is not always productive or healthy uh but nevertheless I, i think it does bear some commentary here to be sure i mean what are the things he's praising here he's praising accurate reproduction Of events which have important events not just any events important events which have gone before and these are events which remember this is a At least in theory a pre uh, Literate age. So these are not you can't just write these down and forget about them They have to with great effort be memorized by an uh, individual internalized in his mind And then he carries the collective history for the people around in his head and then performs it in a performative sense Uh, as it were the history only springs into being it only springs into life when it is spoken forth by the rhapsode Uh, it's not like a book you can put on a shelf and it becomes a thing it's a verb it's a verb it's a verb it's a verb a thing that needs doing and here the accuracy of the history is of paramount importance now the historical aspect of the epic of course is one of its key identifying features it's not probably its first and foremost function so i don't want to overstate the position but that historical notion is absolutely key. There are no historians here. There are no history books. There are certainly no departments of history. The people need to know where they came from in terms of values and events so that they can chart a course forward into the future. You can't know what you desire in an informed sense unless you know where you came from. So you've got that constant that right. fertile intermixing is uh T. S. Eliot says uh, of, of desire and memory. The memory here is the history and the desire is for what you shall do or achieve or attain in the future. It's a, necessarily a binary relationship between one and the other. You can't just have one and not the other. And that is largely how we oftentimes seem to function nowadays, where we deliberately ignore or remain ignorant of history, whether personal history, collective history, institutional history, whatever it might be. And yet we think we can In an informed and intelligent way know what we ought to desire for our future We can't you need to know your history You need to know where you came from to know where you're going and this is something I think that these ancient Greeks that this audience knew very well that Homer knew very well So the historical aspect is absolutely core.
0: Yeah, that's really important. And because again the notice of of artistry post romantics becomes fact versus fiction and poetry is fiction and and fiction is uh, almost, it's almost Plato's representation. It has nothing to do with reality or it's a, an imaginative reality, but not really a lived reality and not an experienced historical reality. Well, this is clearly not what Homer thinks about these things. It's, oh. it's absolutely vital to Homer that fidelity to real events is preserved. That's your point. I think it's an important point. It's the point uh, upon, which, uh, on, upon which biblical authors will also hold. very important that there's a fidelity to events and nothing can be ascribed to uh, what we would now call fiction
1: yeah in Uh, an academic age which celebrates doesn't even doesn't even promulgate it celebrates the fact that history is a a work of artifice that we create for our own individual and collective human needs and purposes and what have you that everything's a construct everything's a construct everything's a construct Um, this is clearly not the assumption on the part of these writers here they do assume that there were objective numinal historical uh, events and that the rhapsode needed to faithfully reproduce those to the best of his ability this is not just a construct
0: i would say the only construct is the statement that everything's a construct that is the construct the relativizing Yes. A construct that everything's a construct actually it isn't that's not correct
1: every now and again You can say what you want to say in terms of historical Veracity and you know, you can change it uh, Relativistically how you like but every now and again hard historical Objective reality is going to come along and bite you in the butt and it's going to disrupt your narrative It's going to shatter your illusion and there you are bereft of your pretensions I should also say that also part of bound up with inseparable from the historical function of the rhapsode and his epics is the notion of these cultural values which are passed on and interpreted through historical events people made the decisions they made and they did what they did because they hold certain values and insofar as their uh, their values to be emulated and celebrated um they become a core part of that culture because culture is just that i to some extent i follow definition of culture, one of the earliest definitions of culture, which is culture is an inherited set of values Which binds a given society a given p- people in this case of the polis together It's like I hold value X. Oh, you hold value X2 Well, we're together at least insofar as we're dealing with value X and it creates a sense of not just unity but also Fraternity and affection we value the same things and other cultures value different things And it's these things like I said, which make us us in a sea of them. I'm quoting Herder here
0: So multiculturalism by that definition is almost a pure nonsense
1: No, that's how you destroy a society you take away the glue you take away the welded the, the welding material with which to pull people together in a sense of fraternity and unity and mutual affection and communion you take away all those things by promoting a, a multicultural, multi-value system operating under what kind of umbrella? Well, apparently, none at all. The only umbrella is a meta umbrella,
0: the uh, umbrella of power and and authority, really. Which is or,
1: yeah, or brute mercenary convenience. You know, a relationship of uh, you know mutual exploitation or something like this. An yeah. awful society in which to live.
0: Good heavens! Why would you yeah. do that? And the Greeks
1: knew this. Um, and of
0: course, the effect of that multiculturalism is a culture without culture, a culture without a history, a culture without a past, and a culture, I would probably say, without a future.
1: Uh, invariably, it's, it's inherently and probably, I would argue, even in certain instances, deliberately destructive. So when we celebrate that kind of thing uh, you know, the only thing that binds us together is the fact that we uh, accept all the val- values It's like I have a set of values you have a different set of values But what pulls us together is the fact that we accept any and all values That's a parasitic position. That's like I said, that's a metaculture. It's not a culture. It's a metaculture And if it's it's essentially like the parasite on the back of a dog It can't exist without those other authentic cultures to pull them together uh, So if you take those away, it's a parasite without a host and yeah, that's we'll a good what way What parasites without hosts do, they they die.
0: Once there's nothing left of the host and that that of course is the hermeneutic of suspicion that's been operating in yes. the academy for some decades now. Yeah, so, yeah. The, the,
1: the notion that we can deconstruct everything and anything and we never bother with putting anything of value back in its place after we've destroyed stuff, that has become a mania now. Culturally, yeah. academically, politically even.
0: Well that's not what we're encountering here and this is one of the reasons why when we teach uh, courses on homer we find that it is like water for a man in a desert it is absolute it is a balm to people's souls they find sustenance and and uh, delight in this that they do not see in contemporary texts
1: and as i said fraternity and companionship and communion i mean these are Positive things, not negative things coming out of, out of history. These are positive things coming out of history. Nowadays, we have a sense that history is just basically a long narrative of various oppressions within sort of a, a hegemonic power model. It's just yeah. like, you know, whoever had the upper, le- uh, uh, the upper leg uh, going into a given era was the one who became the monstrous oppressor. The deconstructor will expose them for the hypocrites they were and the monsters they were, and then we move to the next era where we repeat. Well, that's yeah. a very negative view of history and it doesn't build the student of history up at all it breaks him no. down
0: so this is the yeah and that's the con the consequence of the of building really of self-cultivation ultimately there's nothing less left of the self uh, after everything's be- been debunked you have an empty set that's there. right
1: because the core of the self it, individually the core of that uh, person's identity is, this is the Western assumption, and I'm sure people will disagree with this, is that set of values which defines them individually, but also connects them uh, socially to the other that they encounter within their culture, insofar as they do share a culture.
0: And so the stories here are of such moment that even the gods are interested in this these stories and the account of what happened to Agamemnon when he returned home to his wife Clytemnestra and Uh, the suitor Agisthus murdered him and then his son orestes avenged himself upon both of them there's a conflict here because on the one hand killing agamemnon is an act of regicide and of Mm -hmm. course it's murder of your uh, wife, it's the murder of your host. I mean, they're terrible things. On the other hand, Orestes has murdered his mother as well. Mm-hmm. So there's an element of he, although he's done a just thing and the gods praise him for it. There's an element in which he's also in the wrong here.
1: Well, and, I think uh, this actually, this typifies many aspects of the uh, of the Odyssey, because Odysseus does things he knows he must do, as Orestes does, but he doesn't like doing them. You know, a question that I always had when I was reading the Iliad was, if Odysseus is successful in convincing Achilles to go back into battle, does he know that that, is, that will uh, equal the death of Achilles, ultimately? He Absolutely. Killing his friend in order to get his friend to do the right thing. Yes. Um, and, but we see it again and again in the Odyssey as well, where he does the right thing, but it causes him great sorrow. And I think Virgil picks up on this as well with Aeneas. He does what he does not want to do, but it's the right thing to do. But his consequences are 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 horrific and so we see uh infamously in the case of uh, dido's abandonment where he does what he needs to do but it causes him boundless personal sorrow yes and i suspect that virgil is actually playing off this motif uh especially as he encounters it in the odyssey odysseus yes he had to destroy the trojans he had to defeat the city Uh, he heard the lamentation of their women and their children and he saw what happened to them uh, he did what he had to do but did he like what he saw as a result of it or does it cause him great sorrow um, and I think sorrow is where he ultimately lands again and again and we see it here he falls well in. that's
0: how that's how Homer describes him a man of many sorrows so with his wisdom comes sorrow he's the sort of the man of you know the Proverbs
1: yeah, this, this is a motif in Western literature. You encounter it wherever you go. Odin, uh, the god, uh, is told, is given all knowledge by uh, Mimir, whose head lies at the bottom of the well of fate. And he returns and the, the gods want to rejoice. But Odin, uh, this is where the, the grim brooding version of Odin really gets his start. Now he has heard all knowledge and it has made him deeply and profoundly sorrowful and he will not speak of it to others. The middle way, I believe, he says, is always best when it comes to wisdom. You can encounter similar notions in the Book of Ecclesiastes.
0: So the, the, there's a, a an importance of faithful, truthful storytelling. There's a uh, an interest in these things not only by the Greek city-states, for which their their function is. To educate and to bind the community together as you say in a shared narrative of purpose and meaning But even the gods seem interested in the human stories, which is rather interesting since You wouldn't have thought the gods would have such a concern for the affairs of men, but they do and again They almost they almost seem envious.
1: Yeah, we have to remember that uh, these epic tales Their source is not the people telling them. The source is not even as far as the Greeks are concerned, the very cultures that celebrate these tales and these histories and things like this. They prayed to the muses and the divine uh, intervened in human affairs to produce this transcendent poetry with this transcendent tale. As it were, insofar as it is a divine tale, uh, it's speaking the very language of the gods themselves. They know this realm. So yes, it is intrinsically human because it's dealing with mortal heroes who die and, and suffer and wander. And yet at the same time is told in a manner that is infused with the divine and the transcendent, so that you rise above that mere experience of suffering into something more noble and beautiful. And in that sense, I think we oftentimes forget how, especially with the Greeks, storytelling and poetry in particular has profound connections to the religious. Uh, If you look at uh, later on when we come to the Romans, one of their words for um, a, a poet is a vates, Yes, the same word as a prophet. A prophet and a teller of tales like this, the rhapsode, are very close kin, if not even almost in some senses identical. The manners in which they manufacture or generate these tales uh, uh, bear strong resemblances to uh, religious dynamics in ancient literature. Yes, many of the same figures and many of the same notions, the diamonic the, for instance, uh, the muses and what have you, uh, get brought in from all these directions and it produces in the audience. Uh, explicitly religious responses and I think that's one of the more interesting things here about Odysseus's response to this He is, he is thrown into kind of a negative ecstasy or ecstasis. He is outside of himself. He's uh, This is where we get the modern phrase from to be beside oneself with a passion beside oneself with joy, beside oneself with grief. That's you're saying. You know, he is in the throes of ecstasy when we say that. That's exactly what it is, and it's a religious notion. The divine has infused the ears, as you, uh, as it were, of the audience, and he or she is transcended to a place of tremendous power and pathos. Uh, mm-hmm. As is Odysseus here at this point. He can't control himself. He's in a dangerous spot. He should shut up and play his cards close to his vest. He, he is taken out of himself
0: yeah and that might be distinguished with the one moment in the Odyssey when Odysseus does reveal himself I talked about this last time Mm -hmm. uh, just briefly when he uh, dealing with the polyphemus Mm -hmm. uh, the Cyclops and he reveals who he is I'm Odysseus sacra of cities who's done this and that moment of revelation which is not told as a story but but more as a, a declaration it's not divinely inspired. It actually brings about divine wrath. Yes I'm Telling it as it were uh, brings down uh, His destruction whereas there's another side to it that we haven't touched on here There is there is a relation of storytelling to deceit and that Connection is made in its sharpest critique by Plato in the Republic right where he charges the the poets with lying and he goes Explicitly after Homer and explicitly after his portrait of the gods who are portrayed to be lying and adulterous and so forth and basically acting like the worst of men there's a a sharp critique of that uh, of the fidelity of the storytelling enterprise but Mm -hmm. I always say in response to that look at the fact that in many of Homer's own or rather Plato's own dialogues when he's trying to illustrate something particularly profound he tells a story yes (laughs) at the conclusion of it he'll often tell us a story that will illustrate everything he's been talking about up to this point so it doesn't seem like he is opposed to storytelling per se it's more that the veneration with which homer is held by the greeks that's his problem it's not actually storytelling it's the nature of the gods as portrayed by homer that's the problem he has
1: i i think he sees storytelling as such in, a, in his ideal, Paulus, he sees it very much in service of philosophy. So, you know, he's being, yes, prepared, yes. And maybe he's got a license to do that. Uh, certainly uh, literary sorts do that with philosophy and history. But having said this, so he wants to subordinate storytelling to the, uh, the aims of philosophy. And so by using stories of his own, what he's doing is perhaps emphasizing the importance of figurative readings of stories. Uh, we see... Uh, a, a surge of obsession with allegorical modes of yes. storytelling rise up here in the late Greek period, certainly into the Roman period, and then straight into the the, the late antique period as well.
0: Yeah, the Alexandrian school of interpretation. Yeah. Precisely,
1: yeah. precisely. And, uh, and it just kind of takes over. But Plato himself is contributing to that mode because he adopts that mode himself. How is this story true? It's true in a figurative, not literal, sense. To what extent is the odyssey doing this here? Are these are we to read the odyssey figuratively overall? or Are there uh, strategic points of reading it figuratively or uh, are there no figurative readings allowed whatsoever? Uh, it's, it's I Guaranteed to have been a question that was of first importance to its original audience the ancient Greeks They would have discussed this endlessly
0: Yeah, I should have thought so and yeah. and more recently Jordan Peterson has sort of revived the Carl Jungian
1: oh yes yes. you know
0: archetypes and the 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 meanings of stories and the and the the latent um impulses that lie behind these stories and so forth which i find quite interesting actually although they're non-historical entirely speculative and sometimes totally off base but but nonetheless there's a recognition that there's something universally important in these stories which give is precisely why they're so powerful even to this very day as we've already discussed i mean undergraduates when they read these stories they don't think they're reading a fiction or just a story there's something more meaningful in it than that and they um, know it
1: well of course nowadays what we celebrate uh, around these sorts of matters is individual and personal significance not collective and universal significance yeah and one of the things that writers of old for two thousand and some odd years uh We're very keen on indeed was that moment of quote-unquote recognition where all of a sudden it dawns on you Ah Achilles like me, albeit in more dramatic and exaggerated form But this thing with which he struggles is the thing with which I struggle in my own life Do I agree with how Achilles handled it uh, or not or what would I have done differently? That's immediately relative to the individual reader when he or she encounters a universal figuratively read moment like this I think it's absolutely core trying to personalize and make the Iliad all about oneself the individual reader how does reading it in my terms and according to my content it is such an appalling loss on the part of the reader I regret that so much it's like you could have gotten so much out of it you could have expanded yourself beyond the boundaries of self and and personal experience into new and and wondrous realms but instead like uh, Odysseus on Calypso's island you decided to keep yourself to yourself Imaginatively intellectually culturally. And so there you are. You remain the same. You don't mature You don't you are
0: an island unto yourself and you've learned nothing from this It's been a sort of a titillation a self gratification, but there's been no actual learning. Yeah I mean, that's the problem of romanticism is it becomes projected onto the past and all it's all about the cultivation of yourself And uh, so there's the problem. I mean that has to be addressed By the teacher in every class repeatedly Mm -hmm. because we we default to the romantic mode of reading it's all about me and my reading and my understanding what I get from the text which is which of course is it's not that that's of no interest it's that it must not be the primary interest that it, it is a contingent
1: get, concern an important right. concern and even even in some senses it uh, confuse the language here a bit it's a necessary concern but would ha- which has to operate at a contingent level if it takes over front and center then ironically the very self you seek to promote will be diminished as you
0: never transcend yourself and you never you don't want outside to you're, yourself
1: you're, you're in your right. comfortable headspace and you do not want to step out of it so you're going to use terms you already know uh, you're going to see things from perspectives already well traveled by you. You're not going to go anywhere You're not going to wander. That's what I was gonna say We were talking about the use of storytelling in the policy and, and use
0: is an important I'm thinking we wanted look at the underworld maybe in the next segment.
1: Yeah, absolutely that, that Conversation about the underworld what it's doing and how, where it figures in the Western imagination collectively uh, and in our works of art Uh, is absolutely core. It's one of the most important strands of The Great Conversation. And I think really the first great explosion of that discussion happens uh, in the Odyssey. So when we come back, we'll come back to that.